Okay, I'm uh, in need of the clicker. Does anyone have it? If someone's geeky enough to invent this, God will bless you. Uh, but what I'd like is, I mean, this thing's, I mean, come on. We sent someone to the moon decades ago. I know some of you conspiracy theorists are like, nah, nah. Um, but there's got to be something that can advance slides faster than this giant thing. Like I'm saying like a little smart ring and then no one knows. There's just a button right there. Boom, boom. And then I don't have to come back to this thing all the time. It really annoys me. It's like you're connecting with someone over here, you know, because most people, we're never going to get started. Um, <laughs> most people have neutral body language when they listen to like a lecture or sermon, but in, in every service, there's like two people who God has anointed and just blessed me with. And they're just like the whole time, like, and they smile and they're just, they're engaging. And so you finally like, you, you, you're feeling like you're okay. And then the clicker. It's like, I'm following you. I'm, I'm, I got my eyes on you, Greg Whitaker. I... Okay. We are about halfway through our series in the book of Isaiah. And we've been talking a lot the last few weeks about Babylon. It's important to note that Babylon is two things in Scripture. One, Babylon is a historical, physical nation. There is literal Babylon that existed hundreds of years ago. And then there is kind of spiritual or archetypical Babylon. And spiritual Babylon is any system, ideology, culture, or institution that exalts itself above God. And this is the story that we see again and again in Scripture from both nations, people, kings, individuals. It's the story that starts with Adam and Eve where people put themselves in a place above God. Babylon is any institution, culture, ideology, framework that exalts itself above God. Now today, what I'd like to do is trace a thread that runs all throughout Scripture, but then as we follow that thread that's running all throughout Scripture, I'd like to show how there are other threads running all throughout Scripture that are being kind of interwoven with that thread. And when all the threads, threads meet and connect, they're not making knots, they're making a braid. And what I mean by that is these threads that flow through the biblical narrative are intentionally being strung through all of Scripture and being woven together with other things. Now, you have to have kind of biblical eyes to see these things. You have to read the Scripture in a way that the Scripture was designed to be read. The biblical authors told the stories they tell in, in the ways that storytellers of their days tell the stories. In other words, they use devices to draw your attention to meaning and significant points in the text in ways that people did in their day. Direction is one of the most important kind of tools that the biblical authors have in their literary tool belt. What I mean by direction is like literal, actual di direction. So for instance, when Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, they are exiled from Eden and they are sent where? East of Eden. Remember that Steinbeck book, East of Eden? That, is that still high school mandatory reading, teachers? You said maybe, so-so? So-so, yeah. The classics get taken out, man. Um, they go east of Eden. They get exiled east. There's a directional flow to that. There's the Cain and Abel story. Cain kills Abel and then he's 
pushed out, he's exiled, and he settles in the land of Nod, which the text says specifically is east of Eden. There's people who migrate from the east, and they settle, settle in a location, and they build the Tower of Babel. If you read the story of Abraham, you read that God promises him the promised land, Israel, and whenever Abraham sins, he travels farther away from literal promised land, literal Israel, and he gets closer and closer to Egypt. As he's doing well and is behaving righteously, he gets closer to the promised land. This is true of other characters in Genesis, like Jacob. And if you're familiar with the Bible, the story of Genesis ends where? Not in the promised land that was promised to Abraham, but in Egypt, with Joseph, who is only like borderline the only good guy in all of Genesis, and he's dead, and his bones are in a box in Egypt longing to go to the promised land. The story of the Exodus, God delivers his people from Egypt as slaves and takes them to the promised land. When Babylon destroys Jerusalem in 586 BC, they take the Jewish survivors and take them to Babylon. So there's this kind of directional flow, and the authors draw your attention to this. They want you to see, uh uh-oh, we're getting farther and farther away from Israel, from the promised land. Now that's significant because in Jewish thought, the promised land, Israel, specifically Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, is the center of the world. In Jewish thought, the Temple Mount is the center point of reality and the cosmos. It's the place where heaven and earth meet. So God is said to dwell in his temple there, and so the closer you get to Jerusalem, the closer you are to God's specially, significantly kind of manifested presence. The farther away you go, the worst off you are. That's how the stories work. Now, you have to clue your, your kind of eyes into that or you miss that stuff. But once you know that that's what's going on, it's pretty easy to follow. Because we do this with our stories all the time. We just have different devices. For example, if you are reading or watching Lord of the Rings and um, a character, even a good character, says like, I can hold the ring. They volunteer to hold the ring. If a character, even a good guy, volunteers to hold the ring in Lord of the Rings, what, what is it trying to foreshadow? That dude's going to go bad. If you volunteer to hold the ring, if you think you are so morally virtuous that you yourselves cannot be corrupted by the power of the ring, you're going to fall. And, and that's true of everybody. There's only, like one, there's only one character in Lord of the Rings who can hold the ring and not be corrupted. It's Samwise Gamgee because that guy's a class act. That's if you're a father. That's future marrying material. You remember that, that young buck hiked Frodo all the way up Mordor? Wasn't corrupted. He's a good guy. Everyone else, though, if they say, Mr. Frodo, I can hold the ring, you know they're going to go bad. Star Wars um, has a way of cluing you in. The writers clue you into the importance of something that is about to occur. It can be an ordinary moment in Star Wars, an absolutely ordinary moment in Star Wars. Um, But then the way Star Wars lets you know, like, something with the force is going to happen, is they do it through audio. So you can have a normal scene, a young, cranky adolescent with this weird little green monkey creature on his back who has bad grammar and he's running around through the jungle and you think nothing's going to happen. This is like, there's no magical powers here. But then, 
Wait. Still ordinary, nothing big. But wait. That's not just an annoying little green creature on my back. It's Master Yoda. And you know some crazy, you know like he's going to make some spaceship levitate any second now. Uh, Star Wars geeks, that happens on what planet? That's the planet? Dagobah? Okay. But people who watch a lot of Star Wars know the way the plots work, and they, can, they, they know what, what people are doing with the storyline. And if you, were, if you knew Star Wars, and you went to go see the last movie that came out, The Force Awakens, about 15 minutes into that movie, if you're a Star Wars person, you're going, this is the same story all over again. And if you were like a real Star Wars geek, it wasn't like, I didn't like it because I'm not like a true Star Wars geek, but if like you're a purebred one, you're going like, and that's exactly what would happen. It would repeat itself because you know the way the stories work. In the Bible, direction matters. It matters significantly. Now, again, to trace this thread, we got to go back just a couple steps. Last week, uh, Sam talked on Isaiah 39, and here's the brief context to it. Isaiah 39 takes place when King Hezekiah has been king for quite some time, and he's been a pretty righteous king, a good king. He has just trusted in God to deliver him from the Assyrians. Now go back several weeks to week three for a refresher on how bad the Assyrians were, but succinctly said, the Assyrian culture at this time is one of the most brutal people groups to ever live. So when the Assyrians were coming to destroy King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, it wasn't like, if we lose, we lose a battle, and then we'll all go on with life as usual. The Assyrians would come and absolutely devastate and destroy. Men, women, and children would be killed, and Hezekiah's sons would be tortured in front of his eyes, and just the most horrific things would occur. So Hezekiah, in the midst of that threat, with the stakes that high, Hezekiah trust in the God of Israel and in the God of Israel alone. And God delivers him. And it's interesting, the historical records outside of the Bible do record that the Assyrians were advancing on Jerusalem. And then kind of mysteriously, in the Assyrian and other records, it doesn't say why, but we do know outside of the Bible there is records that the Assyrians were knocking on Jerusalem's door and they all sort of went home out of nowhere. Just like stopped the advance. God delivers Hezekiah after all this time. Then he's in a time of peace, relative prosperity, and Isaiah 39 tells us this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, a present from Babylon. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered, and Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them in his treasure house the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oils, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now you got to understand, this isn't just like Isaiah chapter 39 telling you, oh, Isaiah was very hospitable to the Babylonians as they came. He, he showed them around. Oh, something else is going on. 
the Babylonians send an envoy and they send presents and there's a letter. We don't know the contents of either, but most likely the letter was a way of saying, oh, the Assyrians have left your land. Their power is on the down and we're seeking alliances and friendship. Again, we don't know exactly what the letter had, but this is how the ancient warfare world worked. You would seek alliances. And so I don't know Hezekiah's motivations. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know this. Hezekiah, for the first time, entertains friendship with literal historical Babylon. And he doesn't only entertain friendship, he physically, but this is the symbolic act, allows Babylon in to his home. He goes even further. He begins to show Babylon all the great things of his kingdom, the gold, the spices, the spices, the silver, the precious oils, his whole armory. You get the feeling, and you can almost picture Hezekiah like almost showing off. Look at all the gold, look at all the silver, look at all the oils, as if to say, look at all that I have. If Babylon had came and they wanted to see how you were victorious over the Assyrians, the proper answer isn't to show them your gold, silver, oils, and spices. The proper answer is, we had no hope but for our God to deliver us, and he did. Would you like to know about him? Hezekiah shows off. It's almost to, to a way of exalting himself in the midst of Babylon entering into his home. And then right after that scene, our beloved prophet of doom enters. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon." Babylon will not come to destroy Israel for more than a hundred years. It's that far away. But the idea is this. King Hezekiah, a good king for the first time, allows Babylon, physical Babylon, but also spiritual Babylon, to creep in. And make no mistake about it, that small act would have repercussions and those repercussions would have repercussions and a hundred years later the very people whom you flirted with whom you sought attention from will be the very people to come in and destroy you which makes me want to spend a whole kind of sermon just on this but i'll just briefly say this this is why leadership is so incredibly important a leader can make a mistake and he in his lifetime may not see the repercussions you as a mother or father, you as a leader, whatever position you might find yourself in, you do something and you think that there's not going to be any real consequences to it. In Hezekiah's day, it would be a hundred years later that Babylon would come in and destroy. The leadership and character of people matter. And Isaiah wants to make this crystal clear. It's not just like Babylon's going to come in and... and destroy the city. No, look at verse 7. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of king of Babylon. Now, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you need to go Google that after church. 
And no, this is next level brutality. They're going to make your kids eunuchs and they'll be slaves to the king of Babylon outside of the Holy Land. Absolute horrific scene. And then this story ends like this. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. It's like, oh, dude, you used to be so awesome. You were good King Hezekiah, and now you welcome in Babylon. Isaiah tells you what's going to happen. You don't try to repent. You don't try to pray. You're just like, it's going to be all good in my day. It's going to be all good. Now, a hundred years from this point, give or take, Babylon again comes in and destroys Jerusalem. But in Isaiah 39, that's still a very, very far off event. It's a hundred years away. Right after Isaiah 39 ends, you start chapter 40, and it's one of the most like hard right turns in all of Scripture, and it's also one of the most confusing things to follow in Scripture. So right now, there's going to be like a timeline, there's going to be chronology, there's going to be like prophecy, and it's going to be all tangled up together, and if, and if you're having trouble keeping up and putting things in order, just, just kind of hold on to the details. Don't worry about every single thing lining up perfectly because it's complicated. Isaiah is complicated. And as, as we close, we'll tie all the things together. But Isaiah tells Hezekiah this in roughly 712 BC, about a judgment 100 years later. Isaiah 40, the very next verse starts this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Five eighty six BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. And in kind of the ancient mind of the day, that meant one of two things. One, it meant that the foreign nation and their gods defeated your God. So the God of Israel, Yahweh, is thought to be destroyed by the foreign armies, the Babylonian armies and their gods. That's one option. The second option is something called divine abandonment, and that's actually what's most common. Divine abandonment is the idea that as the foreign armies came in to destroy your temple and destroy your people, your God was like... I'm over you guys. You guys are going to lose this battle. You're no good. You're going to get taken out. You're weak. And he leaves. He goes somewhere else and goes to another people, and you experience divine abandonment. Uh, By the way, there's a first century historian named Josephus, and he believed in a sort of divine abandonment. He was a Jewish man who believed in the God of Israel and the scriptures. He believed in Yahweh. But because of kind of all the suffering of the Jewish people for the previous 500 years, he believed that Yahweh jumped ship. The Jewish people experienced divine abandonment and Yahweh joined another team. Guess what team he joined? Rome. Why would you think that in the first century? Because Rome is the most powerful. Clearly they have the gods on their side. So if, if you are a Jewish person in 586 BC, when the temple falls, you think one of two things, our God is defeated or he's abandoned us. Isaiah 40 begins with words of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. Now here is, here is the wrestling of the chronology. Who is Isaiah speaking to? Isaiah 39 is 712 B.C. 
There's peace in the land. There's no warfare. There's no suffering. But Isaiah 40 is going to be talking about a group of people who have experienced suffering and warfare for quite some time. It's like going to a, a, a people who live in a culture where there's been no wars for 50 years and they're in economic prosperity and then going to them and saying, I have a word from the Lord for you. Your suffering is about to end. The war is about to end. All your problems are about to go away. And they're going like, you're crazy. We haven't had a war in 50 years. We're not suffering. Life is great. Isaiah 40 is no longer speaking to the people of Hezekiah's day. Isaiah 40 is speaking comfort to a people that do not yet exist. They are the people who will come after the destruction of, of the temple and who are then taken away into exile for 70 years. So it's almost like Isaiah, you have to picture Isaiah like speaking to a future people that do not, do not exist, who are about to go through all of this. And to them he says, comfort, comfort, my people. If you've been in exile for 70 years by the Babylonians, do you think your God might have abandoned you? If you've seen your temple destroyed and you've been a slave in a foreign land for 70 years, do you think God might have abandoned you? Have you ever experienced something in your life so painful and horrific that you only have one of two conclusions? Either my God doesn't exist or he has abandoned me. Have you been there? Isaiah says, comfort, comfort, my people. You belong to me. I have not forgotten you. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah is talking about something we call the end of exile. Again, Babylonians destroy the temple and they take the remaining survivors into slavery in Babylon for 70 years. And in the Old Testament, there's a lot of discussion about the end of this future exile. And when the end of this future exile were to occur, this kind of returning back to the promised land after slavery, there was a number of things that were to occur. First, is someone's going to let you go back to the promised land. They're not going to keep you in Babylon forever. That's first. Second, there was going to be a like super forgiveness of sins. Not just like normal, like you sacrifice some animals in the temple. There would be like this super forgiveness of sins. There would also be a new law that was given, a type of law that is written on people's hearts, not just on stone tablets. Fourth, there was going to be a like miraculous divine manifestation of the presence of God. Think the burning bush. Whenever God reveals himself in a powerful, unique way in the Old Testament, there's some, some type of expression of that. So the burning bush in the tabernacle period, there's the, the burning cloud of smoke and fire, like some visible expression that says, your God is here with you. And then fourth, what was supposed to occur at the end of exile was that not just Jews, but all people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship the God of Israel, okay? Now, here is the, the crazy thing. The Jews are in exile for 70 years, and then the Persian army under King Cyrus beats the Babylonians and allows the Jews to go back to the promised land. 
But when they get back to the promised land, that's the only thing that occurs out of the four or five things that is supposed to occur at the end of the exile. They're back in the land, but they're still oppressed. Things are still bad. There's no divine presence of God revealed, and there's no incidences where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are coming to worship the God of Israel. And so the question you have to ask is, who exactly is Isaiah saying this comfort to? Is he speaking to Jews in exile, or is he speaking to to the Jewish people after that event? He gives you some clues. He goes on in Isaiah 40. There's going to be a voice, and this voice is going to cry in the wilderness, and this wilderness voice in the desert is making a way, a highway for the Lord. The Lord is all capitals here in Hebrew. That means it's the divine Hebrew name, Yahweh. So there's going to be someone proclaiming in the desert and making a highway or a path for God himself. Make straight the de- in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Again, you get that. People are going to see the glory of God at the end of exile. Isaiah says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So at the end of this kind of 70 years of exile, there's supposed to be a messenger, a voice crying out in the wilderness, and people are going to be celebrating in Jerusalem, and there's going to be good news. Isaiah promises good news. He promises gospel. And the reason why it's good news is because God himself is going to come. Lastly, he says, Behold, the Lord your God comes with might, with his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. That last part is some of the most beautiful, gentle, gentle and tender poetry in Scripture. And you almost go like, who is this? Uh, Isaiah, the prophet of doom, has just been like, he's going to kill everybody. He's, God's coming. Judgment's coming. Fire. Remember the image of the tree? If there's a tree, chop it down and then look at the tree stump, then burn that down. And then all of a sudden, God is tender like a shepherd who holds the the lambs close to his heart. There's glimmers of hope in this text. Okay. Now, putting all the timeline together, I told you that the the pieces are everywhere. Isaiah 39, Hezekiah allows Babylon in. Isaiah says, this is going to lead to the downfall of Jerusalem. Babylon, a hundred years later, comes in and destroys Jerusalem. Then they take the remaining survivors into exile to slavery to serve in Babylon. That lasts for 70 years. And then a king named Cyrus destroys Babylon and lets the Jewish people go back into the promised land. When they get back to the promised land, here's the great big tension. God's people are back in the land, but something is not right. And for you long-term Christians who are familiar with the book of like Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jewish people go back to the promised land, but it's not like a return to the golden years, right? It's bad. 
There's still corruption. There's evil. They can't even build the temple. There's no divine presence being revealed. And there's certainly not people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming back to worship the one true God. By the way, uh, this is a trick question. Letting you know ahead of time. What is the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. Now that's right, but I told you it's a quick trick question. So Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, the way it was ordered in the time of Jesus, they have all the same books, but they, they, they appeared in a different order. The last book of the Old Testament in the time of Jesus was not Malachi, it was Chronicles. And the book of Chronicles ends with like this crazy tension. Chronicles ends with King Cyrus basically saying, I'm awesome, I'm the best king there ever was. Now to the Jewish people, you can go back to Jerusalem, let them go up. It's like the last sentence, let them go up. And it's this idea at the end of the Old Testament that God's people are finally going to go back up to Jerusalem and all the divine promises that they've been given are going to be fulfilled. What happens is they go back to the land and none of those promises come true. Then you enter into a time called the intertestamental period where no books of the Bible are being written, but it's not good times. They're back in the land, but things aren't right. And another empire comes, and another empire comes. And by the time you get to Jesus, 500 years after the time of the destruction of the temple, the Jewish people are under oppression by the Roman Empire. They have a puppet king whom they hate, named Herod, sitting on the throne. And life is miserable. So much for all these prophecies and return of exile. It's been 500 years since a king a rightful king, a righteous king, a king according to the line of David, has sat on a throne in Israel. This is how Mark, most likely the first gospel, the first biographical account of the life of Jesus is written. This is how it starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we spent about 20 minutes on this in week one, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. The beginning is an allusion to Genesis. Mark uses the word gospel. He has two contexts for that. There's the Roman context where there would be military victories. Good news would go out. The gospel is that someone is victorious over an enemy, but there's also a Jewish context for the word gospel. Good news. And where is that from? Isaiah. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ is Mashiach, Messiah. It's not Jesus' last name, it's his title. It means he's the king. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the rightful king, the Messiah, the good king, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now remember, if you're a Jew in Jesus' day, you know Isaiah 40, and you know there's supposed to be this comfort that's supposed to happen, but man, you've sure been in the promised land a long time, and there's not a lot of comfort going on. And then you hear this story from Mark, he quotes Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah's image about there being a voice 
of one crying in the wilderness, a voice that's making a highway or a path in the desert. For who? For Yahweh himself. But who is Mark going to point to? To Yahweh, yes. But more importantly, to Jesus. See, this is a very Jewish way of saying Jesus is God. Um, we're modern Western people, so like, if we want to know about something, we, we like, kind of want to look it up in an encyclopedia and get to it right away. So we go, like, show me the verses where it says Jesus is God in the New Testament. And you're going to see those here and there, but that's not the way they, they do theology. It's like, can you give me all the references to where the Scripture says Jesus is God, second person in the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with, with the Father? It doesn't happen that way. What they'll do is they'll tell you a story and then all of a sudden, they'll take a part of the story that you know a voice is going to prepare the way of Yahweh in the desert. And then all of a sudden, they're going to go, behold, the voice preparing a way in the desert for Jesus. It's much more interesting to do it that way. It goes on, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his his waist and ate locust and honey. Now in order to experience this properly, we've prepared for all of you some locusts to eat this morning. I should have thought of that. That would have, been, that would have been really cool. A good pastor would have been thinking ahead. So good. Just a little locust, a little locust, dip your honey. It'd be good. Ready to go. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is speaking of Jesus. John is the voice of Isaiah crying out in the wilderness and the path that he is preparing is absolutely for God himself and the path that he is preparing is absolutely the divine manifestation of presence of God showing up again, but it didn't come in a burning bush or a burning smoke of fire, smoke and fire. It's coming in the person and work of Jesus. Now, question. Let's go back to our direction issue. Where is John baptizing people? Jordan River. Um, He's calling people out of Jerusalem into the wilderness. Now again, you need to know that whenever the Bible talks about spiritual renewal or repentance, all of those discussions take place about people going up to Jerusalem. And if you're going to baptize someone, you do it. They have mikvahs in in Jerusalem near the temple where you can get baptized, wash yourself. In the thought of the day, if you were going to experience spiritual renewal, you go up to Jerusalem and the temple mount for that to occur. John is calling people out of Jerusalem into their wilderness. They turn their backs to Jerusalem and walk out. Now, in case you might be thinking, Isaac, you're just reading a lot of this direction stuff into the text. Because you could do that, by the way. You can like just, you know, the Bible says, and then he traveled five miles north, and then you're like trying to discover some deep spiritual meaning about those five miles. You've got to be careful. But how do we know that there's something going on with the direction of repentance in this passage? 
who do Jesus and John the Baptist reserve their harshest words for in Scripture? Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious elite, those in charge of the temple institution. I mean, the harshest words in all of Scripture are reserved for Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious elite, those, those in control of the system. Now, it's crazy because in one sense, like, Jesus will be like, let the little kids come to me. I, I love them. I hold them in my lap. They're like little lambs. I let the little kids come. And then he sees a Pharisee and he's like, woe to you, viper, you whitewashed tomb. It's okay. I'm not that mad. And it's like, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's powerful. He runs into a Pharisee and John the Baptist. I mean, they don't mess around with these dudes. Everyone in, in, in Jerusalem knows what John the Baptist is doing by calling people out into the wilderness to be baptized. Do the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious elite like what is occurring out in the wilderness? No, they hate it. They hate it. They hate John the Baptist. They would have him killed. Now, this reaches a climax with Jesus. Jesus performs a similar action to John, and he does it with symbolic action. The Gospel of Mark, by the way, is split up into two pieces. The first half of the Gospel of Mark has Jesus traveling primarily in uh, Galilee, in the northern region of Israel, teaching. And then Peter, in chapter 8, says, you are Christ, Son of God. And then Jesus goes, oh, you know who I am now? Now it's time to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And they start making their march up to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, Jesus performs powerful symbolic action. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, if you're not following the threads of Scripture, you're just going like, dude, when Jesus gets hungry, he's grumpy, man. Do not mess with him. You know what? I always knew I was Christ-like. That's how I act when I have a name. And that's not, not the point. And you know it's not the point because the last line says, and his disciples heard it. Jesus is speaking loud enough to a tree so that his disciples hear it. The fig tree, Jesus says, was supposed to bear fruit, but it's not, so he curses it. The Old Testament and the book of Isaiah speak of a vineyard that is supposed to bear fruit, but rather than bearing fruit, it bears bad fruit. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem and Jerusalem is the city and the people that should be bearing fruit. And we're not talking literal fruit. We're talking about deeds of righteousness, justice, mercy, compassion, holiness. Israel is supposed to be the people that blesses all the families of the earth. When Jesus goes looking for fruit, he finds none on the fig tree and also in Israel. Now, that's not to say there's no righteous people in Israel, there wasn't good Pharisees, because there were. But as a whole, the institution had become corrupt. Jesus curses the fig tree, and Mark immediately tells us what happens next. 
Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. The very temple mount, the place where the temple is located, the place where heaven and earth is said to meet, the place that God is supposed to be like in a special way, uniquely manifesting his presence, even that location has become corrupted. Babylon was let in hundreds of years prior to this, but make no mistake about it, when we get to this point, Babylon just isn't an influence. Babylon is running the show. Even the temple mount has become corrupted. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. How do you know Babylon was running in the show of the temple institution at this point? Because when Jesus the actual divine presence shows up in flesh. They don't honor him. They seek to kill him. Babylon was led in a long time ago, and now it's gotten so bad that when the king of glory himself shows up, Babylon seeks to kill him. Then Jesus leaves this scene after he cleanses the temple, and we go back to our fig tree. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And you almost have to picture Jesus being like, you, you get it? See what I'm doing here? The Star, you need some Star Wars music to play right now? Of course, there was righteous people in Israel. Of course, I mean, the disciples were righteous following Jesus. But what the text is saying is that as a whole, the institution, the religious elite of the day had become so corrupted that when Jesus comes looking for fruit, there is none, and he says enough is enough. And there's a voice crying out in the wilderness who is baptizing people, not inside Jerusalem, but outside. It's almost as if you're, you're walking out of Babylon going to, to find true repentance. That's how bad things had been. And if you, if you can't imagine how bad it had become, just know that they crucify Jesus. They murder him in the most horrific way. Now, this is how Babylon works. Babylon sneaks its way in, creeps its way in, and what we do is, is we allow it in our lives, and we get seduced by the comfort and power of Babylon. The systems of this world have a way of offering comfort. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with finding comfort in, in things of this world. This is still God's good earth, and there's things to find comfort in. But I hope you know what I mean by finding comfort in Babylon, finding comfort in things that are actively opposed to God. And we could be seduced by the power of Babylon. We will trust in the, the things of this world to give us safety, surety, and security rather than trusting in the only thing that can give us any of those things to begin with. It's the seduction of Babylon, the comfort and power that it offers. 
Now, the haunting and, and kind of startling question for us today is this. If Israel can allow Babylon to come in and become servants of Babylon, could the church itself become an instrument of Babylon? If you look at times in church history, there is absolutely times when the church was serving the king of Babylon and not the king of the universe. And it doesn't happen overnight. That's why it's so scary. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow, steady creep. You begin to trust in Babylon's power. You begin to trust in its comfort. And sooner or later, Babylon has its grips on you. And you're in servitude. You're a servant. You're a slave in exile to Babylon. Power has a way of, of doing that to us. It, 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 it offers us something that like deep down in our gut we know is an ultimate comfort, is an ultimate power, but the immediate kind of gratification that can offer us pulls us over. And there's always a gravitational pull to earthly power, no matter who you are. No matter who you are, there is going to be a gravitational pull towards earthly, earthly power that makes you want to trust in it. I mean, think about like Hezekiah and King David. These, these guys are like good kings, but they were given power and like almost absolute power. You know the saying, like absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. And there's this idea that these earthly kings, when they receive power and they're not in proper submission and authority to the, to the true authority, slowly but surely things begin to spiral out of control. And like King David, King Hezekiah, they lasted way longer than most, like Hezekiah, when he trusted in the Lord for all those times with Assyria, most of us wouldn't even have made it to allow Babylon in. We would have let Assyria in way before. These are good men who have been corrupted. By the way, on a side note, that's why it's... incredibly important that you pray for your leaders. I mean, that kind of like your city leaders, your your government leaders, even pastors of, of the church or people that are leaders in your life. That's why as a Christian, you should be praying for the president. You should be like, if you're a Christian, you should be praying for Donald Trump, for real. And if you like what I said there, just know that you have to like that same statement two, three years ago too. You're a Christian, you need to be praying for Barack Obama two or three years ago. You want the Lord to give them wisdom and discernment because when they fail, guess what? Other people down the ladder reap the consequences. Power corrupts. And the church gets into a dangerous area when we begin to trust in earthly powers to protect us. It's power dynamics. They're always at play. There's only one king who has ever been able to wield power in an appropriate way. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in this series because this is what we're going to be talking about in the next couple weeks. But, but, but I want to show you that there's only one king who ever held power appropriately. He's the only person who should ever have absolute power and authority. But what he does with the power, when Jesus comes to earth with all authority in heaven and on earth, he doesn't use the power in the ways of Babylon or the ways of this earth. He inverts the power and flips it upside down on his head. And Paul the Apostle describes this beautifully and poetically in Philippians 2. He says, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, 
He did not count equality with something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The only one who deserves all authority and all worship becomes a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here's why this text is so important for our discussion on Babylon. You cannot fight Babylon with normal weapons. You can't do it with missiles and nukes and guns. Different weapons have to be forged. The way you fight Babylon is by being like Jesus. You invert power. You become a servant. You become willing to die. And in doing so, you you are defeating Babylon at its own game. And Jesus models that perfectly. So the way you live as a Christian in the context that we live in, which I hope you know Babylon is like alive and well all over the place. The way you live in that context is by being like Jesus, following his example and all that he does. And in doing so, you have a fighting chance, but you have more than a fighting chance because he promises you his spirit a strength that you don't have. And the power of the gospel is this. The power of the gospel is that the strong can be made weak and the weak can be made strong. The first can be made last and the last can be made first. And in that is the true power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is difficult because if we're all honest with ourselves, I want lots of gold, silver, spices, fine oils, and I want to show it off. And I want to have people give me compliments and, and approve of me. You guys, all, you guys all wrestle with this, right? Wanting power and acceptance and, you know, wanting to, to be liked by people. Like, we all do that. This is the secret how to fight it. It's to be like Jesus. Now, as we close, um, I realize that Isaiah for the first seven weeks has been primarily the prophet of doom. But as we enter into this Christmas season, and we did this intentionally... Uh, he begins to leave the prophet of doom and starts to become a prophet of hope. But in order to truly understand all the hope, you have to understand the doom. You got to understand it. You got to walk that thread, follow it through, throughout scripture. So I want to close with two words for two different types of people. Um, and I, my prayer is that every single heart in here would be moved by the Spirit. One would be moved towards conviction, and one would be moved towards comfort. If you are a person who's being seduced by Babylon, you are trusting in its comfort and power, my prayer is that God's Spirit would convict you of that right now, and He would reveal specific ways in your life that you're being seduced by the power of Babylon. It could be a number of things. It could be dealing with with money, it could be dealing with relationships, it could be dealing with reputation, whatever it may be that God would specifically reveal to you in your life where you're just starting to let Babylon creep in. Because guess what? If you let Babylon in, there's going to be consequences. If you are a parent, you're a mom or dad, and you got young kids, you let Babylon into your house, your kids will pay the price for it. If you're a grandparent and you're letting Babylon in, Your kids and their grandkids, they see that stuff. They're going to pay the price. If you don't have any kids, you're a single person, you're a young person, you're like, I'm not even married. You let Babylon in your life, your future spouse will bear some of the consequences of your actions today. No matter where you're at in life, 
you have to examine your heart. Where is Babylon creeping in? And by God's grace and his spirit, say, remove this from me. Get it out. Let me see it, Lord. Reveal it to me. That's one word. And the other word is for people who, um, who are either in significant um, pain or trauma right now, but kind of more what's on my heart is, is um, you know, we're, we're entering a difficult season for, for many people. Had a woman uh, this morning at the Hollister campus just crying because, um, you know, her, her husband died, but that wasn't the big deal. It was that her daughter's missing. Her, her father, this is the first, you know, Christmas without dad. And so, um, for those people who are entering to a difficult season, you, you've got to know that when Isaiah speaks, Isaiah 40, he says, comfort, comfort my people. He is speaking comfort to a people that don't even exist yet. I mean, do you get how powerful that is? God is speaking comfort to people not even existence yet. Their sufferings will not occur for a hundred more years. So if you are a Christian, you have a God who is outside of time, who knows your pain, your hurt, and your trauma, and your agony before it even occurs. And in the present, before it occurs, he whispers comfort to you. And the God of heaven and earth loved you so much that he came to die on a cross to save you not only from yourself, but to save you from Babylon and the day star, Satan himself. And the Bible, the reason why I love the Bible is it's not a, it's not like a fluffy, wishy-washy book. It doesn't say like, trust in God and your pain goes away and you're going to rejoice. It acknowledges the pain, acknowledges what's about to occur, but says in the midst of trial, you can know that God is present. He is close, he is near, closer to you than the air in your lungs. That's why we call him Emmanuel, God with us, as we enter into Christmas season. So for those of you who are entering into that time, just know it's painful, I know, I get it. But there is a God who can look you in the eyes and say, I know what pain feels like. I know what abandonment feels like. I know what loneliness feels like. I know what betrayal feels like. I know it all. And I'm here with you, and I love you so much that I died for you. Pick one of those two options. You're either in need of conviction, because Babylon is at the door, or you need some comfort. And as, as I close in prayer, we're going to ask God to to reveal those things through his spirit. And we'll close with these words. Comfort, comfort my people. And this is the image I want you to leave with. Even if, even if you're the person who needs conviction, know that the person who brings conviction is like a shepherd. Speaking of God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a beautiful, powerful image. Father God, um, I pray that every, every heart and mind in this room would be, would be given either conviction or comfort from your spirit directly right now as we close in these moments, Lord. For those of us who are flirting with, the, with Babylon, we are looking at the seduction of her ways and its ways and, and finding it, creeping into our lives, Lord. Uh, convict us, reveal to us where it's at, Lord. And by your spirit, give us strength to to put a stop to it. 
And maybe that means coming up for prayer after service. Maybe that means confessing in a small group. That means talking about it with a friend. But I pray that that which, that which is in secret um, it, it would be brought to light so that there might be healing in that. And I, I pray that we learn to trust each other enough that we could confess each other's sins to one another, that we could bring stuff to light so that we can talk and discuss and remove the sting of it, Lord. I pray for people to, to open up about those struggles to one another in their small groups this week and in their relationships. And then for the people who need extra comfort today, Lord. The thing that separates the story of Christianity apart from everything else is that our God came to us while everyone was looking up, reaching to heaven. From heaven you sought us. and You came like a shepherd and you died for us. So I ask in the name of Jesus, Father, that your spirit would give extra grace and extra comfort for those who are hurting in these moments. As they enter into the holiday season, know that there is pain and, and struggle, but that we can take courage and comfort knowing that you have defeated Satan, sin, and death. Lord, we love you. Increase our heart's capacity to love you more and to love each other more. You are a good God in the midst of a broken world. And we as a church say in agreement, we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys go and comfort.